From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, September 22nd. An oil company from Estonia recently abandoned its plans to mine oil shale on federal land in the Uenta Basin. The company was hoping to produce 50,000 barrels of synthetic crude oil every day for more than 30 years. But the chances of that happening are pretty slim now that they've given up their federal lease and effectively lost their water rights. KZMU's Emily Arnson reports. The company, Enefit, still holds mining claims on private and state land in the Uinta Basin. But it's unlikely the company will ever have access to enough water to mine oil shale on that land. An environmental group, the Grand Canyon Trust, and the company's water rights holder, Deseret Generation and Transmission, recently reached a settlement that says the water promised to Enefit can't be used for fossil fuel production. This is Michael Toll, an attorney with Grand Canyon Trust. It's a big win for the Upper Colorado River Basin to make sure that this very large chunk of water, you know, talking 15 cubic feet per second or about 11,000 acre feet per year, that this won't be used for fossil fuel development. Oil shale takes a tremendous amount of water and energy to mine and process. To extract the oil embedded in the sedimentary rock, the rock needs to be heated to almost 1,000 degrees. And that's just one step in the process of turning the shale into usable petroleum. That oil shale facility would have been catastrophic for environmental and public health reasons. You know, that really isn't hyperbolic. Would have had carbon emissions, kind of well-to-wheel, full-life cycle carbon emissions, more than 75% uh, higher than conventional oil. Um, It would have used an absolutely tremendous amount of water from the upper Colorado River Basin, um, withdrawn from the Green River, and it would have resulted in degraded air quality in the Uinta Basin, which already has some of the worst air quality in the country, and and hundreds of millions of tons of waste rock that would have polluted nearby groundwater and surface water. Um, So the project itself would have been uh, a real kind of nightmare for the Colorado Plateau. In 2005, the Bush administration was trying to figure out how to capitalize on the country's huge oil shale reserves. So the Green River Formation has more oil in the form of oil shale than all oil reserves on Earth. It's a huge amount of oil. And and so just Utah, I believe, has more oil in the form of oil shale than all of Saudi Arabia, as far as Saudi Arabia's conventional oil oil reserves. The administration tried to jumpstart the industry by issuing research and development leases on federal land to various energy companies. Enefit was the last of these companies to give up their lease. None of the companies, including Shell and Chevron, could prove that mining and processing oil shale would be economically viable. Extracting usable petroleum from oil shale is common in Estonia. That's probably why the Estonian state-owned company took interest in the project. This company has tons of experience in mining and processing oil shale because in Estonia, the combustion of oil is how they generate most of their electricity. So in in Estonia, oil shale development has been going on for a a very long time. And there are waste rock piles in Estonia that are referred to as the Estonian Alps. You can can see them from space. Just huge, huge mounds of of, uh, hazardous waste rock as a result of oil shale mining in that country. For KZMU, I'm Emily Arnson. The Navajo Tribal Utility Authority has completed a new solar plant in Red Mesa, Utah. Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD has this report. In August, the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority started generating electricity at its Red Mesa Tapaha power plant. It's the utility's third large-scale solar plant on the Navajo Nation. 
The plant will generate up to 72 megawatts of electricity and will serve 16 communities across Utah, as well as three chapters of the Navajo Nation. Anywhere from 60 to 80,000 uh, homes could be served. Glenn Steiger is an executive consultant at the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority. There's still 14,000 families on Navajo Nation that are unserved by electric power. So some of the revenue that we receive from the solar plants goes toward the building of our electric system to serve those folks. The total cost of the project was $110 million, which included some support from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Steiger says federal funding makes solar projects economically viable on a reservation with lots of sunshine. There's a significant amount of solar irradiation available uh, during the year, which makes it uh, very, very uh, applicable for solar generation. Later this year, the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority will break ground on a 200-megawatt utility-scale solar plant for construction in Cameron, Arizona, the company's biggest solar project to date. I'm Clark Adamitis. Getting more of the world's power from renewable geothermal energy could reduce fossil fuel emissions and slow climate change. But very few places have been able to tap into that underground heat. Until now. David Condos with our partners at KUER reports on how recent breakthroughs are putting a green spotlight on southwestern Utah. There's a new hotspot in the world of geothermal energy, a seemingly sleepy valley in Beaver County. Its secret? It sits on bedrock that reaches temperatures up to 465 degrees. So if you think about ovens and turkeys, you can cook a turkey in that well if you wanted a lower one down. Site manager Joseph Moore points across a dirt parking lot to a well at the Utah Forge Project. It's the University of Utah's subterranean lab. This is a convention the mission here is to test geothermal technology through trial and error, paving the way for other projects that could someday power your home or office without greenhouse gas emissions. This is the best site in the country. There are hundreds and hundreds of square miles of area that could be made into a reservoir. Geothermal has been around for decades, but it's been limited to places that naturally have hot water below the surface. Think a geyser or hot springs. So these researchers are here to answer a big question. Can you pipe cool water through cracks in underground rock and heat it enough to create a geothermal plant almost anywhere? High up on the site's drill rig, a team of workers screw together pipes taller than a two-story house. Giant pieces of metal swing into place suspended from wires. Twist, lock, then plunge underground. Pull the slips and now he'll... John McLennan, the project's technical lead, watches it all through a window while monitoring readings on a computer screen. So we've drilled to just under 11,000 feet in depth. Six years after drilling began, his team recently completed a major milestone. They proved for the first time they can, in fact, pump water from one well through underground cracks to a second well. Now, this type of geothermal system does require quite a bit of water, which may set off alarm bells in the parched West Utah desert. But there are two big reasons why McClellan says it still works. One, it draws from aquifers where the water quality is too low to use for drinking. And two, it's a closed-loop system. So the same water keeps recycling through over and over, 
cooling, heating, and becoming steam that turns turbines. But remember, this is a research lab, so it's more guinea pig than power plant. What we're doing here, we are not producing electricity. We are developing the technology so that the private sector can adopt this methodology. One of the private companies building on the Forge Project's research is Fervo Energy. It just hit a milestone of its own, producing power for the first time at its geothermal pilot plant in Nevada. And it's about to break ground on its next geothermal project, right here in Beaver County. But even as the technology catches up, there are still more hurdles before geothermal starts powering your light bulbs. One is easing the regulations around building geothermal projects, says Jeremy Harrell. He's chief strategy officer for ClearPath, a D.C.-based research and advocacy group focused on clean energy. Harrell says it's often harder to get permits to drill for underground heat than it is to drill for oil or gas. In a climate crisis, he says that's not going to cut it. Our regulatory structure in this country was created in the 70s when climate wasn't an urgent problem, right? And so now we need a different structure in place. Geothermal can have some environmental impacts, from habitat loss to an increased risk of earthquakes. But geothermal's impacts pale in comparison to those from fossil fuels. And if regulators don't speed up the permitting process, Harrell says the U.S. will have a hard time cutting emissions fast enough to curb global warming. Everything has trade-offs, right? Like you're gonna have, not going to have zero environmental impact on, on building anything. And so we need to look for the, <laughs> the forest over the trees, right? Like climate is a central challenge ahead. So that's geothermal's big picture potential, fighting climate change. But it can have local impacts, too. As rural communities struggle to keep their populations and economies afloat, green energy could be a lifeline. Beaver County Strategic Development Director Jen Wakeland sees local geothermal plants and nearby wind farms as a way for the area to carve out a new niche. If we're creative enough to look at how we can utilize those resources, the ground beneath our feet, sometimes the air above our heads, <laughs> as it were, can really make the difference in a strong economy or one that decides to wither away. Farming and mining are still the big players here, but those industries have often been boom or bust. Wakeland says renewable energy could help more small towns weather those highs and lows. I'm David Condos in Beaver County. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Some local business owners are calling attention to traffic, weeds, and blight in Moab's downtown corridor. And as Sophia Fisher with the Times Independent explains, they want the city council to do something about it. On Moab City Council's September 12th meeting, the council fielded complaints from uh, resident Tony Lima and former city councilor uh, Karen Guzman-Newton about the state of Moab's downtown. Um, as I'm sure folks know, you know, some of the intersections downtown can be pretty dangerous or feel pretty dangerous for pedestrians. Mm-hmm. But they were talking about not only that, but also, you know, crumbling sidewalks, uh, buckling pavement, weeds and, and litter and vandalized trash cans across downtown. They're basically saying, you know, we're not giving a good first impression to visitors or to or a good experience to locals. Okay, so at a recent city council meeting, a few community members brought this up with councilors. Um, what happened next? 
Yeah, I think they're still in early stages of figuring out next moves. Uh, city manager Carly Castle did mention that the city was going to go out for funding early next year for kind of a comprehensive downtown master plan, which is something they've been eyeing for, I think, probably at least a year at this point. Um, I know for Lima, that feels too far away. He said, you know, a lot of the work is right in front of us. And why don't we just tackle it now? So I think, you know, we might end up seeing one of these more comprehensive kind of planning processes uh, before kind of shovel hits the dirt on some of these projects. All right. It sounds like Lima was really fired up about it. Um, Before we started recording, you mentioned that your editor, Doug McMurdo, who wrote this piece, um, went out on a walk with the concerned citizens. So what did did he see? Well, first of all, he got a photo of a truck running a red light downtown, which we all know happens, but we had yet, you know, we at the paper had yet to have photographic evidence of it. Um, But that was one thing. You know, there's also um, a building not actually far from the TI office whose sides are just like crumbling off and look like they could fall on people. Um... There was uh, a shorn off tree trunk surrounded by weeds and what looks like to me like goat heads on in downtown. And you can see that there's a lot of uh, plant litter built up in the curbs. Uh, so definitely he took many more photos that we didn't throw into the into the paper also. But, you know, walking up and down uh, Main Street, you can see that kind of all over the place if you keep an eye out. And you may have mentioned this, Sophia, but these concerns are coming from um, folks who have businesses downtown. Is that right? Yes. Uh, both Guzman Newton and Lima both own uh, businesses on Main Street. So I think this is definitely a concern of the business community and uh, folks who have a stake in in the visitor economy here, um, but also for everybody else too. I mean, some of these concerns are, are just safety concerns for really anybody, especially those maybe in a wheelchair. Well, more coverage on this issue is in this week's edition of the Times Independent, and there's more to highlight. Where do you want to take us next, Sophia? Certainly um, the eclipse, which has probably been on people's minds more and more. It's coming up in just under a month now on October 4th. 14th around uh, 10, 10.30 a.m. You know, that is more on my mind because they saw some Eclipse glasses for sale at um, one of our local grocery stores. Okay, I had heard they might be at grocery stores. I know they're at Royce Electronics, which is what I put in the story. Um, But grocery stores too, that's great. You do need Eclipse glasses. It is not safe to watch. None of it is safe to watch without Eclipse glasses. All right, you need (laughs) special glasses. And if you're a glasses wearer like me, you have to wear them on top of your glasses, which is very cool. Um, But I'm going to do it because this is a pretty unique event. Tell us what's going to happen. Fashion statement and safety <laughs> statement. Um, it's really exciting. It's an annular eclipse. The moon is going to block almost all of the sun. Uh, and it's going to travel right through southeastern Utah. Moab's not going to get full annularity, but we will get at least 80% annularity. And if you mm-hmm. drive just like 20 or 30 minutes south of town to like LaSalle Junction area, that's when you start to hit full annularity. Wow. Um, but I'm, I'm glad you brought up grocery stores because I spoke with Cora Phillips, uh, the director of emergency management at Grand County. And she was saying it would be really good to stock up not only on Eclipse glasses, but groceries, fuel, medications, etc. before Eclipse weekend comes. Okay. And did we mention when Eclipse weekend weekend is coming? It's October 14th, which okay. is actually also the weekend that a lot of Utah schools have their school break and historically a very busy time for Moab already, let alone mm. having an eclipse the same weekend. So Cora Phillips, as you mentioned, Grant's emergency management director is recommending, you know, locals get prepared. Absolutely. I could just imagine, you know, I mean, local grocery stores we've already seen can sell out of some um, important items like eggs and, and hummus and things on busy tourist weekends. So I would say just, you know, don't go to City Market on a on that Friday night, maybe try to Mm -hmm. go on like Tuesday or Wednesday or wherever you get your groceries. Um, Maybe just like fill up your tank if you don't want to have to sit Mm. in a line for a while, because I think there are going to be a lot of people here and there will be congestion. So just kind of prepare for that too. Okay. Well, that's a good heads up. Oh, I I should mention, uh, according to a state spokesperson, they're expecting about 300,000 people, both from in-state and out-of-state to travel to the Eclipse Pass.
path within Utah. So that's not everybody coming to Moab, but yeah. certainly some of them will come to or come through Moab. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, if people are planning a road trip, you know, they might stop in Moab um, for a few days and then head further south to watch the eclipse or Absolutely. vice versa. I've heard a lot of folks are heading down to Bluff to San Juan County, I know, is uh, preparing a lot as well. And, you know, if you're going from Moab down to San Juan County, maybe stock up before you go there as well. Just be mindful of the local communities. Speaking of San Juan County, um, there's another article in the Times Independent related to our neighbors, our southern neighbors. Uh, what's happening here? Uh, the San Juan County Commission has been taking steps to rein in a, quote, you know, mess of illegal short-term rentals operating in the southernmost strip of Spanish Valley, which as folks know is is within San Juan County, not Grand County. So what steps does it seem like they're taking? Yeah, so some of the more straightforward things they're going to be doing are um, improving enforcement mechanisms. I think their jury is still out on how they're going to fund bringing in extra people to do code enforcement, uh, but they're also going to add stronger language to the land use code and to some planning documents that developers have to submit to specify that short-term rentals are not legal in the residential zone in that mm-hmm. part of Spanish Valley. They're legal in most zones, just not the residential zone. And that's really what this focus is on. Um, But the headline says something about delicate legalities, because beyond that, there was this kind of weird situation. um, And I'm getting this from the administrative law judge, Lynn Cresswell, who's been uh, working with the San Juan County Commission. But there was a period of time when short-term rentals, you know, land use code had come out uh, demonstrating in some way that short-term rentals were illegal in the residential zone. But due to some missteps um, from county staff, some developers were told that they could operate short-term rentals in residential areas. So there's also talk of essentially giving amnesty to those folks who can prove that they were erroneously told they could operate. Wow. Okay. So there's a couple different reasons for the enormous amount of short-term rentals in um, San Juan County. Uh, This is your story. This is your reporting. One of the first sentences that you say is that, you know, there are hundreds of new units zoned for use as short-term rental in Spanish Valley. Absolutely. Yeah. And this conversation actually, I would say, arose... uh, when the county commission was considering the Balanced Rock Resort, which Mm -hmm. is primarily what I'm referring to here, but there have definitely been several short-term rental projects approved recently. It it came up, you know, during that period, they're adding so many short-term rentals and there are already so many operating, but a lot of those operating, especially if they're operating potentially illegally, aren't contributing the transient room tax Mm -hmm. or the sales taxes um, that are, you know, a primary reason that they actually benefit the county in some ways. Um, So I think this discussion really arose back then. The quote about it kind of being a mess in, in Spanish Valley came up during a talk about Balanced Rock Resort, you know, not referring to the resort itself, but just kind of the existing situation on the ground. So I think uh, the commission is recognizing that, you know, as they approve some of these more um, kind of above board projects, they need to take a look at the ones that are operating kind of more covertly and try to rein those in. Tough to do without a code enforcement department. It is. um, It is. They do not have a code enforcement officer uh, from what I've seen in in meeting minutes. And I know that, you know, it's kind of a chicken or egg situation, too. I mean, San Juan County, it was mentioned several times by commissioners down there. It's a poor county. They really don't have a lot of funding. And especially when they're not getting these transient room tax or sales tax funds, they're even poorer. So it's, you know, it almost feels like it's hard to enforce until you have the money to do it. But until you you won't have the money to do it until you enforce it. So... Does it feel like, you know, reporting on this issue, Sophia, does it feel like San Juan County is still invested in short-term rentals? The issue in question right now is actually just getting money from the ones that are operating, you know, illegally. I think they are. Um, yeah, I think there's definitely recognition from county staff and county commissioners that it is a really good way for them to get funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, the county is, you know, has said that they are struggling financially um, and, you 
that is definitely one way to kind of capitalize um, on, on tourist dollars. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, most of Spanish Valley in San Juan County is actually um, owned and controlled by the state, by CITLA. Um, mm-hmm. And they're planning to develop there at some point. But it's sort of unclear when that could happen. It's a huge project. It would probably take decades. Um, so I think you know, San Juan County doesn't necessarily see that as like an assured source of potential uh, sales tax or other income quite yet, or property tax income rather. Yeah. Um, so they're looking for other methods. Well, there's a lot of information in the Times Independent about this issue. Finally, let's go to the quote unquote B section, um, which is now within the within the A section. Within the A <laughs> section, um, recreation and outdoors. Uh, your editor Doug McMurdo wrote a piece about a skydiver. Yes, he wrote an excellent piece about a uh, lifelong sky skydiver Kim Emmons Noor who landed at Skydive Moab last week. Noor is 84 years old and she has uh, sky skydove, skydiven <laughs> just about 600 times and her goal is to reach a thousand. She skydived a lot in her youth and then took a, ver- a very long break um, but is back at it. It's a pretty incredible story. Oh my goodness. All right. 84 years old. Doug reports that she made three tandem jumps um, at Skydive Moab. That's incredible. Was Doug able to interview her? Yes, he was. The first couple of graphs of the story have such fascinating tidbits. Uh, Nora was one of two women to compete against men at the national team tryouts in 1961. Uh, in 1962, she was a member of the first women's national skydiving team that won the gold medal in the World Parachuting Championships in Orange, Massachusetts. Wow. I didn't know of any part of that sentence before I read that story <laughs> that any of that was a thing. Um, so really cool, really cool things. And this woman's been doing it for ages. So she was apparently hailed as, as kind of a hero by local skydivers. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. More stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Earlier this summer, two bats found in Arches National Park tested positive for rabies. That made Moab Sun News reporter Allison Harford curious about what this means, if anything, for humans. She tells us about their latest coverage. It's been like about a month since they found the first bat. And so I wanted to follow up on this story and just kind of check in on what the park does um, when they find like rabid bats and also what happens at the hospital if you have an interaction with a bat. Okay. So we chatted with Karen Garthwaite, who is the acting public affairs specialist for the Southeast Utah Group of National Parks. And she said that the bats found in arches were already dead because rabies kills bats really quickly. Oh. Yeah, so when I was writing this story, I was imagining this kind of like wild chase with the bat flying around around at 2 p.m., but that's not what happened. Yeah, rabies kills them really quickly, and so they just found like the dead bats and then sent them in and found that they had tested positive for rabies. And this doesn't indicate an outbreak or anything. Um, Less than 1% of all bats like at all times carry rabies, Mm. which is not a lot, but still, you know, bats are flying around um, with rabies. But also it's really important in this story to kind of preface that bats play a really vital role in the Moab ecosystem and they do get a lot of bad press because they carry rabies. But here there are 18 species of bat that call the state home and they can eat up to a thousand mosquitoes per hour, which is crazy. Um, and they pollinate plants and disperse seeds. Like before I wanted to write anything about rabies, I wanted to make that really clear. That's kind of just important context for this. So Karen Garthwaite at the park said that when park rangers are notified of a bat acting strangely, they try to very carefully move it away from a busy area if it's still alive. Um, And they use like thick gloves and a long handled tool. Mm. Um, 
And then I also chatted with Luke Counterman, who is a provider in the urgent care clinic at Moab Regional Hospital. We kind of chatted about like, okay, what happens if you do get scratched or bit by a bat? So rabies is transmitted only when the virus is introduced into a bite wound, open cuts in skin, or onto mucous membranes like the mouth or the eyes. Luke said that any direct contact with a bat should be considered a potential exposure to rabies because like bat scratches and bites can be super, super small. Mm -hmm. And even if a person wakes up with a bat near them or if a bat is found in the same room as someone who can't confirm an exposure, like an infant or an unconscious person, that should be considered an exposure to rabies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so not a lot of people actually get like real human rabies where symptoms start developing before they can be treated Mm. that's super rare um luke said that he has never seen or seen that for himself or even met another provider who has treated a case of human rabies but still you have to take this kind of seriously because once symptoms do develop it's almost 100 fatal for Mm. humans For this particular incident at Arches National Park, you know, as you explained, you know, they found two bats who were deceased who did test positive for rabies. Did Karen Garthwaite at NPS, you know, have any suggestions for people who are visiting the park or did they send out any like general education about bats in the park? Yes, Karen really emphasized that bats are really good for Utah and she's like very against this kind of like you know, be scared of rabid bats education. And so really arches the stance is kind of like a lot of bats call this place home and especially the parks. And so if you see a bat in the park behaving strangely, then definitely notify a park ranger, but it's nothing to be like terrified of. So more information about this bat issue in Arches National Park, but also um, just about bats in general. And it sounds like some safety tips um, are in this week's edition of the Moab Sun News. There's more that we want to highlight. The paper always has um, profiles about artists. And there were two um, that just spent some time in Moab making some cool projects. Yeah, so the Moab Arts Reuse Residency occurred this year in March, but then also in August. And so in August, they hosted two artists, Renee Reisman and Tom Hansel. So I caught up with both of them just to chat about like what the residency was like and what they created. So Renee created these portraits of our local Canyonland Solid Waste Authority staff, except these aren't normal portraits. Each staff member is portrayed as a detective, so they're in certain settings and in certain outfits, and they're like holding items like notebooks. And these were really meant to kind of portray this idea of sanitation workers as a different form of law enforcement. And so when Renee was here, she kind of explored like what role sanitation workers play in looking into crimes here. So she created these portraits and then also did interviews with everyone. She found out some really surprising things. She said one of the most surprising things is that sanitation workers know everything. They know every home and every type of trash Mm. that gets disposed. And so she said it like they know everyone's secrets, like here's the house that always has alcohol bottles or this is the house with all the dogs. If there's like Mm -hmm. a lot of like dog poop in the trash or, you know, Mm -hmm. here's the house with the person who's really good at recycling. 
And so sanitation workers do like know these things about their community and they have been involved in some crime investigations like she said she chatted with some workers who recalled stories of like searching for a bloody mattress and they found a gun in the waste stream um they found a lot of other interesting things like brand new toolboxes or brand new items of clothing Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so really her project ended up exploring kind of like this unseen part of Moab where our sanitation workers are like heroes in the community and that's kind of why she dressed them up as detectives. These images are really lighthearted, but she really hopes that they'll spark a conversation about the waste stream and also about um, how we can better treat our sanitation workers. Trash can really tell a story. As you explained, you know, she's dressing up our sanitation workers like investigators. Mm -hmm. Can you describe one of them? Yeah. So in one of them, um, Jessica Thacker is putting handcuffs on a teddy bear (laughs) and in another this woman named melissa is kind of like tipping her cap down (laughs) to the camera as she stands in front of this pile of tires so these are really beautiful portraits i mean renee is a very talented artist and photographer um but they're also very lighthearted and fun and, you know, there's another artist, of course, uh, that you mentioned that was part of this reused residency. You talked to Tom. Yeah. So Tom Hansel throughout August hosted three community workshops. He's a filmmaker. And so he taught people about documentary filmmaking, like how to choose projects and utilize symbols and how to edit films. Um, and so participants in these workshops and Tom ended up creating four different films that were all around 10 minutes long. And these films were about soil composting the waste stream from consumer to landfill and also the uranium mill tailings remedial action site. Tom said that he was pretty fascinated with the UMTRA site. To someone outside of this community, it is a very fascinating project that we deal with uranium tailings waste in our community. This pile of uranium, as you said, waste at the top of town. Yeah, so that was a really interesting um, exploration of our waste stream. And he said he also also really enjoyed like working with the community and kind of getting to teach people how to put all of their films together. Some of his films used archival videos, especially with the UMTRA site. Amazing. Okay, so Tom's film and Renee's photographs, are they accessible? Yeah, so Renee's photographs are going to be on display at the Foyer Gallery in the Mark Mm -hmm. um, throughout the month of September. And then Tom is still working on trying to figure out like how to make his videos accessible, but he will soon have an announcement on that with Moab Arts. All right, TBD. Um, Speaking of Moab Arts, there's a big festival coming up. Yeah, so at the end of the month, the Red Rock Arts Fest is coming back. There will be work shops and interactive exhibits and in the Moab Sun News this week we previewed just a couple of them so every day of the festival attendees can participate in a celebration of aliveness with Cecilia Foley um, this celebration kind of brings together dance and art um, and people are encouraged to take part in it either at the mark or independently in their own space um, hmm. so basically it'll be like this dance put together by Cecilia. She's putting together um, a playlist. And then there will also be paint and poetry and drawing. And Foley said 
They want to leave everyone empowered and feeling like a creator of their own future. And that's sort of the theme of this year's festival. Was there anything that like struck you when you put this article together that you were intrigued or excited about? Definitely. Um, Molly Gurney and Rachel Toops are also creating a very interactive exhibit that'll be on display every day. Um, This one is called Junkyard Reverie, and it's celebrating the future through a sanctuary of hope. And so it's kind of this idea of like a post-apocalyptic church almost. And so the two of them said that the exhibit will bring absurdity and chaos in a way to spark conversations about adaptation, beauty, and play. Um, Oh, that's so cool. So it's going to be an installation that you get to experience. Yes, you can walk into it and um, there's kind of like a wheel of fortune element. (laughs) Like whatever you get will then determine where you kind of go from there within the exhibit. And they also said that it's been this super community labor of love. Like they've had a lot of people help Mm -hmm. them build it. And so it's kind of almost turned into a community interactive exhibit as well. Amazing. The festival will culminate in Street Fest, which brings together like art vendors and music and food. And that's 12 to 7 p.m. on Saturday in front of the mark. And there will be a ton of um, art vendors and more interactive exhibits. Um, like Brian Parkins, who's an English teacher at the high school, will host a poetry booth called Zip Odes, in which students will share their own poetry reflecting the local zip code, which is 84532. So the poems will be five lines with eight words on the first line, four on the second, five on the third. So like each line of the poem will reflect the same number of words in our zip code numbers. So at that booth, people can peruse like high school poetry and also create their own. So there's a lot to do, a lot of different ways to experience um, the arts in Moab during this upcoming festival. It sounds like there's a lot of information in this week's edition of the Moab Sun News, but where should people go to find out more? Well, you can see a full list and schedule of events online at redrockartsfestival.com. Allison Harford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. More stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes on our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.